Hi, everybody. This is Bob Gale, co-creator of Back to the Future, and you're listening to Brad Gilmore. Okay, relax, Doc. It's me. It's me. It's Martin. Oh, I can't be. Just sent you back to the future. Yeah. Oh, I know. You did send me back to the future, but I'm back. I'm back from the future. Wait. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it some style? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Future, the podcast. The only podcast looking back in time at the greatest film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. I'm your friend in time, Brad Gilmore. Look at that. We're here. We made it. Happy, if you're listening to this, by the way, on Wednesday, November the 24th, 2021, happy Birthday to my best friend Avery Davis, and also happy early Turkey Day, Thanksgiving, to those of you in the States who choose to celebrate said holiday uh, with your friends or family, however you do it, slice up the bird, you got the word right there. Um, We have a good show for you today on Back to the Future, the podcast, continuing on with season eight of the show, and today, I'm excited, man, I'm excited about this one, because... um. I'm making the press rounds right now for the paperback version of Back from the Future, a celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told, which has a brand new chapter called The Time Capsule. Uh, This is available on December the 2nd. Uh, Yes, December 2nd. And uh, you can get it right now on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, wherever you get your books. It's there. Uh, I really like this version of the book, cleaned up some of the issues that we had in the first printing of it, so uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for all of you to look through it, live through it, love through it, and do all those great things. Um, So during this, uh, what do you call it, press run, if you will, I um, went ahead and did a podcast with a man named Rob... Mellon, Rob Mellon, and Rob Mellon is the host of the History A Go-Go podcast, History A Go-Go podcast, and he interviewed me about the book, and um, we talked about a lot of different things, a lot of different things regarding Back to the Future, his thoughts on some of Robert Zemeckis' work, his thoughts on recasting, his thoughts on... uh, remakes his uh his and my thoughts on why back to the future is the greatest trilogy of all time and i just thought that there was a lot of fun stuff there so for that reason i'm going to actually play not the entire thing if you want to listen to the entirety of this interview you go to history of gogo with rob mellon it's available on your favorite podcast app of course but if you're cool with just checking out some of the highlights of the interview, you can check them out right here, right now on Back to the Future, the podcast. I'll give a link to the full interview in the show notes below. And I'm excited, by the way, for everyone to get back from the future, a celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told. I'm excited for you to get the paperback edition, which is um, available 
just in time for the holidays, uh, everybody. If you pre-order it right now, it will show up on the day it's released. That's how Amazon does it. I know, I know. They're taking over the world. They're the evil corporation, but they're so efficient. And shipping sometimes overnight, same day. It's crazy. But <laughs> enough of that. Here is my conversation with Rob Mellon on History A Go Go right now on Back to the Future, the podcast. For that first Back to the Future, and you mentioned Ghostbusters, I think those two movies, because I'm a child of the 80s, like we mentioned, and there are movies that if it's on, I'll definitely tune in. Or if I see it on Netflix, I'll click it on. So Stripes, for example, I love Stripes, but I love the first half. I hate the second half. I don't even watch the second half, but I enjoy watching the first half. For Spies Like Us, similar. I like the first half, not a fan of the second half, but you can watch Back to the Future all the way through. As you mentioned, there's no holes. It's almost perfect. Ghostbusters is similar in that fashion for me, the first one, in that it doesn't have a lot of holes either. So I think you're exactly right about that. The thing about the Star Wars trilogy, if you want to call it that, that it was original trilogy, is different than most, is the second film being the best. Yes. And that's the one difference I would say. But otherwise, I don't disagree. I think you're just about right. <laughs> See, that's why we get along, Robert. That's right. So the writers of Back to the Future, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, they knew each other going back to USC. They also knew Steven Spielberg, but their first few films are not very solid. I mean, a true fan might enjoy them. But if you look back at that, what changes the dynamic for them? They try 1941, I think, used cars. But something has to change that dynamic to even give them an opportunity to make something like Back to the Future. Well, I think that, one, obviously the writing was always – the writing is solid. Even if the films aren't the best, there's there's been – a ton of films made where the writing is great, just the execution of the writing didn't work out by the actors or by the director's vision or the editing didn't come together. The, whatever the reason was, the movie fell apart, just didn't connect with audiences. I think that the Bobs have always been strong in their writing. Even if you go back to a movie that they wrote in college called Bordello of Blood um, that was later on actually made into a short film, they wrote on Kolshak the Night Stalker, which was a favorite of my father's. Uh, my dad loved Kolshak the Night Stalker. So their, their writing was always solid. I think that sometimes it's just execution and those films didn't connect the same way that maybe fans wanted to. And also, you look at those movies coming out after Jaws or Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it's going to be hard to come up with something that's going to top that. I actually think that's why Steven Spielberg, especially for 1941, went in the direction that he did. He's like, I got to do something different. So let's do a war era slapstick kind of comedy. But what changed for Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale was this. It was a film called Romancing the Stone. And I know that you probably are familiar with this movie. Love it, actually. <laughs> it's I another it. great one. Another great one. Michael Douglas, of course, starring. And Robert Zemeckis had the opportunity to direct that film. That movie came out. It was a hit. Everybody loved it. A sequel was you know, already being thought about, which was uh, Jewel of the Nile which Robert Zemeckis didn't direct and wasn't a strong, strong follow-up to its predecessor. But anyway, it was a financial success. As you may know, when you get a financial success in Hollywood, all of a sudden, bad ideas to studio executives start sounding like really good ideas. And all these people who originally turned down the idea of Back to the Future were all of a sudden that much more receptive to it. 
And originally, Steven Spielberg wanted to make it and produce it under Amblin. But the Bob said, we want to do something that isn't connected to you. No no disrespect, Steven Spielberg. We want to kind of stand on our own feet. We don't want to be the guys who just get movies made because they're best friends with Steven Spielberg. So they shopped it around prior to Romancing the Stone, and they kind of got turned down by everybody. And I talk about it in the book. At one point, they everyone said, take it to Disney, and then they take it to Disney, and Disney's like, are you out of your mind? We're not going to have an incestuous movie where a mother falls in love with her son. Like That's not a Walt Disney company idea. So after Romancing the Stone comes out, all of a sudden, the studios are more receptive to it. Originally, Frank Price, who was the head of Columbia Pictures, moved over to Universal, and he was the one who believed in the Bobs, and he wanted to have a hand in the movie. And after that, the Bobs were like, well, everybody wanted, wants to make it now. Let's go back to the guy who originally believed in the story, Steven Spielberg. So the turning point for them was Romancing the Stone being a financial success. If Robert Zemeckis went out there, directed Romancing the Stone, and it made a puddle in the box office instead of a big splash, we wouldn't have ever had a Back to the Future. Yeah, and I do love Romancing the Stone. That's one of those movies I do the same thing. If it comes on, if I see it on Netflix... I tune in. I think it's just a great movie. The synergy between Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas is great. So I I absolutely love that movie. And I know you've told this story many times and it's in your book as well, but how did the concept of Back to the Future develop initially? I think it was Bob Gale. Yeah, Bob Gale uh, went back home and he was in his parents' basement and going through old things, found some of his old yearbooks, and then he found his father's old yearbook. And before this, there were already, he and uh, he being Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis were already thinking about, man, wouldn't a time travel story be fun? But they couldn't figure out how to get into it. So fast forward to he's in the, the basement for his parents and he finds his dad's yearbook and his dad was the president of his graduating class. And they went to the same high school. And Bob Gale was thinking, man, I know the guy who was the president of my graduating class and I didn't want to have anything to do with that guy at all. He was a total jerk. And then the idea came to him of, I wonder if I would have been friends with my parents if we went to high school together, which really is a fantastic idea. Fantastic, yeah. Of, man, would would we have been friends? And then it was from that thought that he calls Bob Zemeckis or, or has a meeting with him later on and says, I think I know how we can get into this story. What if somebody goes back in time and has to go to high school with his parents and figures out that his dad's a total nerd, his mom's, for lack of a better term, uh, promiscuous? And he has to you know, see his parents at his same age because it doesn't matter if you're 15 or 50. You never quite can conceptualize that your parents were once your age and they went through the same things that you did. They had to have their first kiss or their first car, or ask out their first date or their first heartbreak or whatever. You don't think about that. And so it was a really interesting way to get into a time travel story that isn't the H.G. Wells variety, where it's kind of this big, huge, massive undertaking. It's a very small, contained story that doesn't get bigger than a fictional town. And really, not even a fictional town, it doesn't get bigger than the cross-section of really one or two families, three families at the most. So uh, I think that that's, that's where Bob Gale came up with the idea, and from there, they were off to the races. Yeah, I think that... You know, that's a, that's the magic of the film to keep it that small, because when things are that small, it actually makes it much larger for the individual. I'll give you an example. So I watched all of the true blood. I went, went through all of the entirety of the true blood. Me and my wife enjoyed that. 
But the beginning, when you only have that one location and a few characters, it seems larger and more important. When they try to make it national, international, it loses all of its luster. I think you're exactly right about that. Now, sometimes that can work, right? Like, if I think about the Fast and Furious films, the first two are kind of like real small stories, right? But as they progress, they get larger and larger. Now, they've gotten to the point of ridiculousness, but I think that somewhere around that Fast Five, where they really went big and The Rock comes into play, they hit a stride. So bigger in that perspective worked. But for this time travel story, or for True Blood, or for any of those, these smaller, I don't want to say smaller stakes, but these smaller stories to where they're about a guy trying to make his parents fall in love, as opposed to an Avenger trying to save the world from Thanos. I think that that was the right route to go for Back to the Future. The thing that I like about Michael J. Fox for that character, Marty McFly, is he has an energy. He has comedic timing, which apparently Eric Stoltz did not have. I had seen any of the footage of him being Marty McFly, but he certainly has the comedic timing. And most importantly for me, he has confidence. In that character, if Marty McFly doesn't have confidence, the whole thing doesn't work because the purpose of it is George McFly has no confidence. And that's the reason why his mother, Lorraine, falls in love with him is that confidence He can exude that confidence, maybe from his character, from family ties. But I think that is the element that's important for Michael J. Fox and Marty McFly to make that character what it was. I think that, and he's also written as a reactionary character. He's reacting to everything that's going on. And Michael J. Fox reacted with the comedy. And you got to think, he's coming off of a sitcom, the number one sitcom in the nation. He knows how to play for comedy. And I actually think if you look at his performance, Michael J. Fox almost knows when to pause Hmm. for a laugh as if an audience was there in the taping like he's used to. (laughs) He honed that ability and he knows, hey, if this was a sitcom, this is where the laugh is. Let me sell the laugh. And he does such a sensational job over it. And he makes it enjoyable to watch him go through the chaos that he's going through. It's entertaining. It's not, oh my, it's not anxiety filled, which is from what I've seen, which is very little, or and mainly what I've heard anecdotally from others about Eric Stoltz's performance, which it was almost a little bit like it put you on pins and needles watching him because you're like, oh, my God, oh, his mom's about to kill. Ah! As instead of the way that Marty, Michael J. Fox's Marty reacts to waking up in Lorraine's bed in 1955, it's a perfect reaction. You're my ma, but you're so ha, huh? you're so uh. She Uh, was, though. Young. (laughs) Young. You're young. Yes, young. (laughs) But, you know, that was such a great reaction. So I think it was just it was just the way that two different actors approached the same part. And it doesn't mean that Eric Stoltz wasn't a great actor or isn't a great actor. Just wasn't the role for him. The other thing about the film I love, and I'll mention a few things about the the following two films also, but the locations and the setting, I love the opening scene. It's awesome. I love the clocks and the whole opening scene. I love the house. You mentioned it being small and about family and so forth. It seems to be perfect. That house seems to be absolutely perfect. I like the town square, even though that's fabricated from, um, you know, a universal lot. And even the mall (laughs) in the 1980s, it reminded you of a 1980s mall. I just love the setting. I think that adds to the film also. 
the setting does add to the film and it adds to the film in this way. One, like you said, it's small. You feel like it's a lived in town. You feel like people would know one another within it. But the other thing is this, is they do a great shot of showing you the mall, Doc's garage, Marty's house, the town square, which is paramount to me for the success of this film. Because when you see that 1985 town square, and then you go back to 1955, it feels like the same place, but it does feel like from a different time. And one of the things the filmmakers did so well is they said you can show great passage of time through logos. Mm. And you see a lot of whether it's the Texaco logo from the gas station or different things throughout the film, you really do get a sense of, oh, yeah, times have changed in this town based upon the iconography that we're used to for 1985. Look at what it looked like in 1955. Let's have 16 tons as a 45 single that somebody can buy from Tennessee Ernie Ford. Let's have the Ronald Reagan movie on the billboard to really set this time. But I think that the setting of the film was perfect. I love the name Hill Valley. The only thing that's ever bothered me is they're so close to Halloween and there's no Halloween decorations. Oh, you know, it's late October where are the Halloween decorations, Bob's. I don't know, but I guess that that would have really, that would have put the film in a certain time frame. Now you can watch it any time of the year and it, it holds up no matter what. Right. So I'm, I'm sure that's why they did that, but it's always stuck out to me. I'm like, wow, I guess, Hill Valley isn't a very big fan of Halloween. I got to talk about the DeLorean. I actually did a podcast with a man who wrote a book on John DeLorean. He's a fascinating character. Originally, it was supposed to be a refrigerator. And then, of course, they go to the DeLorean. And and I think it's because the cost of the film, actually, they had this huge ending plan where there's going to be this atomic testing site in a refrigerator, and it just didn't add up, and it just seemed to make more sense. Of course, it's perfect for the film. It's another one of those decisions that turns out to be an excellent decision. So the ending of the movie was going to be, so the time machine was going to be a refrigerator, and the end of the movie was Doc was going to put this refrigerator on the back of his truck and Marty's going to get in it and they're going to drive to a nuclear test site and then hope the hell it works, right? <laughs> uh, in the lead line fridge. And that concept was dropped only for cost, only for cost. No other reason, not because the story beats, not because, oh, wouldn't it be better than this? But out of that, and I think this is where great art comes from, from constraints. Mm. If somebody says, Here's a blank checkbook, Robert, go out and do whatever the hell you want to do. You're not going to have the same kind of story because you have these, uh, you have limitless ideas and no idea is too big. You can do whatever you want. When the studio says, hey, no, 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 that costs too much money. You're going to have to figure some way around that. That's what challenges the artist. That's what challenges the creativity. And that's what made Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis go, hey, wouldn't it make more sense if this time machine was like in motion? Because, you know, you're going to have to accelerate it in some way to get it to go back to the past or back to the future or whatever, when it makes sense on wheels. And then as soon as they made that decision, it's like, okay, what kind of car should it be? And the most futuristic vehicle, a looking vehicle, even by today's standards, it's like a retro futuristic look, but a futuristic look nonetheless was the DeLorean. Can I be critical at all? Because I know that you're a true fan. You can be. It doesn't mean that I will agree with your criticism, but we can talk about it. Sure, sure, sure. Yes, absolutely. It's actually in the second one. Okay. And it's at the beginning of the movie. I think, and I and I don't really understand it. I, I don't know Bob Zemeckis' work like you do, but I'll ask the question and, and I'll let you decide, or I'll, I'll explain what my criticism is. 
any time that you try to determine what the future is going to be like, you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. For example, in Back to the Future 2, the car's flying, but they have TV screens as if it were 1990, and cars are flying around. Or when he gets fired, it's printed out on a very old printer. It doesn't hold up to the test of time. Sure. That's my problem with it. I also think it's a little corny. But what I'm really kind of surprised at is that Robert Zemeckis would even do that. It just seems out of character for me to think that Robert Zemeckis would take that chance knowing that he's going to fail in that regard. He's not going to be able to accurately predict the future. Now, I think Back to the Future 2 for me is better when it goes back to 85 and then back to 55. And then I think it finds its footing and it's a great movie at that point. And I know they have to go to the future. I I know that's (laughs) it's essential part of the story. I'm just not a big fan of that set or the way it's portrayed, I guess. I can understand where you're coming from. First off, if you have a movie or you have a series of movies about time travel and you only go back, it's it's like, okay, we've seen this. Like, what does the future look like? Because everybody, or for most people, when I ask them, you know, if you had a time machine, what would you do? Would you go forward or backward? Most people say, I want to go forward. I want to see what happens in 100 years or whatever. So you had to go into the future. And they knew they weren't going to get anything right. If I were to ask you right now, Robert, what is your smartphone going to look like in 30 years? Right. We, have, we can't. There's no, we have no idea. And we can sketch something out of what we might think could happen and what have you. But I think that that future scene, the 2015 that was portrayed in Back to the Future, I don't think it was ever meant to be, this is exactly what we feel like the future is going to look like. It was like, let's have a little bit of fun with this. We know we're going to get 99% of this wrong but we need to go to the future and see, you know, at least play around with it. There were things that they predicted that did come true. Paying for things with your thumbprint later on happened with the iPhone and Apple Pay, picture-in-picture screens. I wrote about some of it in the book, but if you actually go back and look, there were several things. The Cubs? Yes, the Cubs. The Cubs. Come on, man. That was a huge one. Uh, There were a few (laughs) things, if you go back and look at, they did get right. But I think that they knew at the time, and you knew – 10 years before and 20 years before, these weren't going to be accurate. But I think that if you never went to the future in a time travel series called Back to the Future, you would be leaving a lot on the table. And so I understand the criticism. Sure, I I get that. And do I agree that I have more fun in the movies? In that movie, when they go to 1985, the alternate 1985 and back into the first film, which I think is a genius idea? Absolutely. However... You had to have that future part. And it gave us, Back to the Future 2 gave us some of the most iconic pieces of memorabilia, whether it be the hoverboard or Pepsi Perfect or the Almanac. Some of those things, if you didn't go to that 2015 era, you wouldn't have had those. The other thing that, and maybe you can square this for me, I didn't quite understand. Right. In the first film, it seems like there's only one universe or future universe. There's not a multiverse. Mm -hmm. And so in the future, whatever happens to you would affect your past or from the past would affect your future. That's why when he's playing up on the stage and his hands fading away or the pictures are fading. So there's only one real future, Mm -hmm. but in the second one, they create a multiverse. How do they square that one? Because that's another one. I'm like, okay, well, there used to be one universe, but now they have two universes. So is it the multiverse or is it the one future universe? So this is something that I have thought about and, when you get into time travel and it's all theoretical, there's no one way to do it. It is kind of, you, you mind can go crazy trying to figure it all out. From what I think is this, is if something goes wrong in the past, 
it alters the future. But where this multiverse came into play was they went to the future and changed something, right? They changed something uh. in the future. And then it had this ripple effect. So somebody from the future went back to the past, gave them future information, which then set on this tangential timeline. Because we do know, even in the first movie, if you do something in the past, it's going to alter the future, right, in a different way. Whether that be running over old man Peabody's pine tree and now the mall is called Lone Pine Mall instead of Twin Pine Perfect. Mall or anything like that. We know whatever you do in the past is going to affect the future. That's that's why at the end of Back to the Future 1, he doesn't return to the same exact reality, right? The, the biggest change from 85, from 1985 at the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie in Back to the Future 1 was George McFly successful, mom's thin, brother has a job. Right. I don't know if Jailbird Joe is still a jailbird. I I'm not sure. I don't think that he is. Though. We'll assume we'll, he's not. Yeah. We'll assume that he's not. You know, we'll assume the cake is not made for him. And Marty's sister has all these, you know, boyfriends. Oh, she can't keep up with them, right? So that changed because George stood up to Biff and then Biff, we see as subservient. So I think that, is there a multiverse? I think that there almost has to be because at some points there's two Martys or two Biffs or two Docs all in the same time period. But I think that they try their best to make it easy to follow because I know Marvel's about to get into the multiverse, especially with this Spider-Man film that's coming out soon. Looks awesome. It looks awesome. I agree. But Back to the Future tries its best to be a linear, like we can figure out, okay, he, he did this in the past. So now that means this is going to happen in the future and vice versa. But there is, if you go down the rabbit hole on YouTube, you'll hear a lot about a Marty A and a Marty B and a Marty C. And how could Marty C be here with Marty A? And you just get confused. So I try not to, to dive too much into it. But I think to answer your question, the future all went back to the past and then altered it. So that changed the time. Well, thanks for deviating off into wrestling. I just have one more question, and it's back to the Back to the Future universe. And I know there were some books and some games. Does Back to the Future, has it built a canon similar to Star Wars? Are there things that are taken as, as truth that come from the books, maybe from the games, and of course from the movies? Yeah, I mean, generally... Canon is accepted for the, not so much for the animated series as much as the video game, the Telltale video game that came out, which was directly worked on by Bob Gale and had the original cast, a lot of the original cast back to voice their characters, including Michael J. Fox, they had a cameo as Marty McFly toward the end of the, uh, of the game and, and uh, Christopher Lloyd played Doc Brown. Those are accepted and, and the comic books that were also written by Bob Gale. IDW comic books that came out started in 2015. They're written by Bob Gale. So if it's written by Bob Gale and it has Back to the Future on it, we we generally accept it as as canon part of the story as well as Back to the Future. The ride is in that vernacular as well in that same um, universe of Back to the Future. There hasn't been any more expanded stories other than those. There's you know Star Wars has novels and yeah video games, and comic books, and TV shows and all kinds of stuff. There hasn't been any, many of those for Back to the Future because Bob and Bob are so protective of the franchise. They're so protective of Back to the Future, the property, that they don't expose them as much. Now, this isn't an expansion of the story, but there's the musical that's out now in Europe that's hopefully going to come stateside here in the next year or so. There are those, but there's nothing, nothing more than that. Do you think there's an opportunity for a Back to the Future 4? I know that Bob Gale specifically has said that he didn't want to bastardize the work that had been done already just as a cash grab, which happens in movies. Do you think that's a possibility? 
I don't think it's a current possibility just based upon what the Bob and Bob say. I mean, they both say over my dead body. Will there be another Back to the Future movie? Most Back to the Future fans say, don't touch this franchise. I don't want you messing with Back to the Future. I'm not one of those guys. I actually write about it in the book, and I had this thought yesterday. But in the book, I talk about, I was one of those people who don't touch my franchise. I like it the way it is. And then I went and saw the 2016 Ghostbusters answer the call, and I hated it. (laughs) I did not like that movie. Had nothing to do with the female cast or anything like that. I thought that they all did a great job with the material they were given. I just didn't think the movie connected to me. It just didn't feel like a Ghostbusters film on the ways that one and two did. But when I went home, I watched Ghostbusters 1984 the same day. And I thought that maybe my love for the films would decrease a little bit, but they didn't. I still love Ghostbusters 1 and 2 just as much as I did before that movie came out in 2016. So with that being the premise, I said, they can make a Back to the Future film. And if they make a four, they make a reboot or they recast it or whatever. And I love it. Great. That's another Back to the Future movie I can talk about and love for decades to come. If they make it and it's awful, well, I still have the three movies. Right. Yeah. And that's not going to change my love for them. So, hey, they took a swing and they missed. So I'm all for Back to the Future getting another film. I think that um, the Ghostbusters afterlife really breathe some life into that concept for me because I thought that they handled a perfect balance of introducing new characters, furthering a new story by giving us the same story and giving us a little bit of the original cast. I thought that they did such a great job of that. I said, if, if Jason Reitman wants to do back to the future, I'm all in. The only thing I would say about that afterlife is what they are able to do with Harold Ramis. They were able to bring him in. That was awesome. And they did it in such a tasteful way, in a perfect way. I know a a huge challenge would be Marty McFly and what Michael J. Fox is dealing with with Parkinson's. That would be a major challenge. But now that they were able to include Harold Ramis, maybe they could do it. I think so. I I mean, I I think so. Michael's acted. Michael J. Fox has acted since then. I think that, you know, in a limited capacity, they could pull it off. That's me. I'm in the minority of the Back to the Future community. Most people don't want you to talk about recasting. They don't want to talk about another movie. <laughs> off, off with your head. Uh, I'm kind of the black sheep in the community who's pushing for it. Well, I apologize if someone from the community does listen to the recasting <laughs> and so forth. I, I really do. But I want to thank you, Brad. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And you allowed me to kind of relive my past and also talk about a little wrestling. Hey, man. Or is it wrestling? wrestling in the south we call it wrestling in the south but uh robert i appreciate you for having me on and um look these movies i've loved them all my life i'll continue to love them all my life and anytime anybody wants to stop and chat about them i'm more than open to it i would like to thank my guest today radio tv and podcast host and author brad gilmore and if you would like to get the brand new release of his recent book back from the future a celebration of the greatest time travel story ever told simply click on the link in the description below. Our featured brew was Voodoo Ranger 1985 Hazy IPA from New Belgium Brewing of Fort Collins, Colorado. If you liked our talk today, please share this episode with a friend. And remember once again to subscribe to the podcast. If you want more information on authors and books, like the History of Go-Go Facebook page. The music was provided by the great North Carolina band Bones Fork. And if you'd like to get their new album, Beautiful Circle, click on their link. It's in the description below as well. 
And finally, I have to say to the list of listeners and supporters from around the world, once again, thank you. There are many more great episodes on the way. So join us again next time when we talk, think, and drink on History of Go-Go. The information in here is worth millions, and I'm giving it to you. That's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? That was my conversation, or at least a segment of it, uh, with Rob Mellon on the History of Go-Go podcast. Make sure you go subscribe, download, leave a comment on the podcast. Again, I'm going to put the description here in the show notes. Got a lot of great stuff over there. Uh, So go check out his podcast. And don't forget, you got to come back to Back to the Future, the podcast next week. Because now that the holidays are around, the recording is in full gear. And I have some special guests planned. But until then, this is Back to the Future, the podcast. I'm your friend in time, Brad Gilmore. And I will see you in the future. Oh, Brad, what have you done now? Oh, Brad, what have you done now?